Welcome to the Catalyst Church Podcast. We're here up in Humboldt County, California. We're glad you're with us. We hope that you're blessed and that you find peace and grace in the Word of God today. Morning. Um, and with us while we worship God together, uh, we are going to be in 1 Corinthians today. I'm going to give us some uh, background before we get into the passage, but we'll be 1 Corinthians 11. There's Bibles around the room for you, so that way you can uh, follow along in the passage of scripture. Um, we are day 29 in our 40-day Lenten fast. So Lent is the season of the church where we strip away and take away or fast certain comforts in our lives, things that are familiar in our lives, so that way we can pay attention to what the Spirit is doing. Um, and, it, and it follows the 40 days that Jesus spent in the wilderness uh, of temptation, and it leads all the way to Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Um, and so next Sunday is the start of Holy Week. Uh, it is the start of Holy Week with Palm Sunday, where the people welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem with shouts of Hosanna and waving palm branches. Um, but, but Lent is a season that reminds us of our belovedness, first of all, and it reminds us of God's presence, even in the most difficult of times. Because I know that a lot of us have experienced really difficult times, especially in the last couple of years. So Lent is just that continual reminder of God's presence. And when we strip away or we take away some of those comforts, whether it's food or social media or alcohol or television, what happens is it can be such a disruption in our lives that it causes us to pay attention. And if it's done in a way that is a spiritual practice, fasting as a spiritual practice, it can reorient you towards a heart of prayer and towards a godly perspective. Today, we are going to continue our conversation around the like common and ordinary parts of life in our Lenten wilderness experience and existence. Uh, before Jesus was led into the wilderness for those 40 days, he was baptized in the Jordan River by his cousin or this, this rogue and wild priest named John. And then when Jesus came up out of the waters, he was greeted by God's voice where the father spoke out, this is my son in whom I love and him I'm well pleased. And this was before Jesus did anything. He didn't overcome temptation. He wasn't some sort of amazing rock star preacher. He didn't heal anybody. Nothing had changed for Jesus from that moment or had, had nothing convinced God that Jesus was finally good enough for him to say that this is my son with whom I love and I'm well pleased in. But what God did is he spoke out the primary identity of Jesus out in that moment. And that primary identity of beloved then went with Jesus into the wilderness. And the same goes for you, my friends. Your primary identity is loved, is beloved. Like not before you do something really amazing or you accomplish something really great or you're super successful in what you're doing. It's just who you are because of who God created you to be. You are loved not based on accomplishment or influence or ability, but because of who you are. And when you receive this identity as beloved, the truth of your belovedness, those temptations like Jesus faced in the wilderness, those temptations that come your way will lose their power. They lose their hold on you when you are grounded in the truth of who you are. 
It doesn't mean that they won't affect you or you won't find yourself in a place of temptation or a place of wondering who you are from time to time. But that grounded rootedness is the most important part of what it means to be human. And I was struck by this truth of my primary identity this week, how it undoes the power of temptation in my own life. And I was, as I was preparing for this message on communion, because that's what we're going to be looking at today, these ordinary elements of communion, um, I felt the spirit was inviting me to go out into the woods a bit by myself. And I don't really do a lot of things by myself. I'm always like, I'm going to go to the woods. I should invite people to join me. Uh, and so it was really important for me to go by myself. And I'm hiking the Sunny Bray Trail, which we've done for church before. And it's like lots of hills. It's a, it's a good trail. Uh, and I'm hiking up and down, running up and down these, this trail with like a huge smile on my face. But I came across the big hill. And if you've hiked the Beast Trail in Sunny Bray, this hill is so big. It's like you have to like, you have to get ready for it. Have you biked it before? Yeah. You had to walk your bike up yet? <laughs> oh my gosh, Adam. It is, it's, it's an intense hill. Uh, and, and I'm just like, I'm just like, I'm gonna, I'm not with anybody. I'm not having to keep somebody else's pace. I'm just gonna barrel up this thing. And I'm barreling up this hill. And, and but before I get to this hill, the first 20 minutes of the hike, as I'm going up and down, I, I, I was like, my, my mind was so noisy. Like there, it's like, it just would not stop talking to me. And it was noisy about all sorts of things. I kept thinking about myself the whole time. It was noisy, like about the things I'd left undone. I was thinking about the mistakes I've made and, and this, this, this certain pole of sin in my life. I kept thinking about my own insecurities and self-doubt. I was thinking about my wrinkles and my, how my knees now click every time I go up and down hills. And, and then I was thinking, well, how long will I be relevant as I keep getting older and older as a woman? And like, it was just so much noise up there. And I like get to this hill and I just start barreling up it. And in that place where my legs started to burn and my lungs were like going in and out so fast and, and my mind was hyper-focused on just making the next breath. I noticed that the noise in my brain started to quiet and all that self-doubt and all this insecurity and shame and guilt and self-focus, it like began to dissipate. And I felt reconnected to God in that moment. I felt reconnected to the most important parts of who I am, what it means to be alive. And I experienced a communion moment with Jesus with my shortness of breath and my exhausted limbs. And I, before I got to that hill, I, I felt like very pieced apart, like kind of like parts of me were kind of leaving all over the place. And as I was going up that hill, I felt like I was being put back together again. There's an author by the name of Andrew Schmemann and he writes that communion invites us to open our eyes so we can live in the world, seeing everything in it as a revelation of God. Communion invites us to open our eyes so we can live in the world and see everything in this world as a revelation of God. Communion is also called the Last Supper or the Eucharist, and it reveals that everything in this world is a revelation of God. So while I was hiking up this hill, my thoughts became off of myself and placed back onto God. And it was being revealed in the very nature that I was in I was reminded of my belovedness in that moment and all those insecurities and self-doubts that became secondary to the truth of who I am in Christ, that I'm loved 
by God. And that I needed that disruption in that moment, this disruption that comes from the ordinary earth and the ordinary wind and the ordinary water that I had to cross over the stream for, all those ordinary parts were becoming very sacred to me once again. Because it reminded me how fully sacred and holy each moment of life truly is. We've been in this series on looking at like these ordinary elements, these water, wind, fire, earth, and then also the elements today, the ordinary elements of, of bread and, and wine and, and how those ordinary parts are so easily missed, but they are so sacred and they are so holy. And when we give them that position in our lives to be reminded of that truth, then we are then reminded that we are not a sum total of our mistakes, we are not a sum total of our insecurities, but we are the beloved children of God. And those ordinary elements that I often overlook are sacred reminders of this truth, the revelation of God. So today's ordinary elements, bread and wine. Bread is the common food of the poor. Wine is the common drink of the wealthy. So this is what we're going to be looking at today. These senses that bread and wine together represent a coming together of the opposite groups of people, very opposite groups of people. These ordinary elements are unifying in the most sacred of ways. And when I was a kid, I don't know about y'all, if y'all grew up in a, in a church or whatever, but we always got the, the communion elements passed before us. Um, and it was always the first Sunday of the month. You can never take communion more than the first Sunday of the month. Some people take it quarterly. We do it every week here. And I've said this before, but I heard once before, like, why take communion only once a month or once a quarter, like somehow keeping it more sacred or more special by like not engaging with it. And somebody said, well, what if you just kissed your spouse once a month or once a quarter? That way you kept it special. Maybe it's not the same thing, but anyway, I would always like look for the biggest cracker that would go by and like the thimble of grape juice that are just like, where's my snack time? I need it when I was a kid. Good. There's a, a quote from a book that I've been reading called The Liturgy of the Ordinary, and the author's name is Tish Harrison Warren. And I think we'll put it on the screen. Oh, well, then you're just going to have to really focus, you guys. Okay. <laughs> All right. So uh, she writes, at the Last Supper, Jesus tells his disciples to eat in remembrance of him. Of all the things he could have chosen to be done in remembrance of him, Jesus chose a meal. He could have asked his followers to do something impressive or mystical, like climb a mountain or fast for 40 days or have a sweat lodge ceremony. But instead, he, he picks the most ordinary of acts, eating, through which to be present to his people. He says that the bread is his body and the wine is his blood. He chooses the unremarkable and plain, average and abundant, bread and wine. Out of everything that Jesus could have given us to remember who Jesus was, Jesus chose the most ordinary thing that we do every single day, eating meals together. And I want us to see during our time in this next few moments, I want us to see how these ordinary elements, they, they point us to the sacred truth of your belovedness and how worthy of love that you truly are. So we're going to read a passage of scripture that is often read in lots of different church services during communion Sunday. It's very familiar. At least the, the chunk, part of the chunk is pretty familiar to most of you. 
Um, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 11, and we'll read verses 17 to 29. And it'll be up on the screen, but you can turn in your Bibles as well. All right, so it says here, in the following directives, this is Paul writing to the church of Corinth, I have no praise for you. How would you like to get that? Sorry. Uh, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have been differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When it comes to those differences, it's more like meaning like spiritual maturity, not so much of like, oh, God loves me more than you. It's more like where you were at in a maturity, mature sense of the word. Verse 20. So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper you eat. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Really quick, you guys, this was written before any of the gospels. So anytime that we read about the gospel account of Jesus uh, breaking bread and pouring wine, um, that was from their experiences and the stories that were passed down of what happened with Jesus. What Paul is writing here is what the church had been practicing and what he received from, from the Lord for the people. So let's keep going. Verse 27. So then whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they, are, before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. May the Lord add a blessing to this reading. <laughs> Thanks be to God. Okay, so this passage of scripture is beautiful. It's inspiring. And it has long been taken out of context. It has been used as a tool of exclusion instead of a tool for inclusion. So we're going to go to the cultural context for us to see what was going on during this time, to see how this passage fits with us today, how incredibly radically inclusive and grace-filled this passage is, and what communion is meant to be for us as people of God. The, the church in Corinth was composed of people who were raised in a Greek Hellenistic value system. It was an honor and shame society where the wealthy and the beautiful, the affluent, the successful were, they held these like really high places of honor. And then the poor or the disabled, sexually ambiguous, or the sick were seen as shameful in a way because of their lot in life. These two groups did not intermix. They did not interact with each other. I mean, unless there was like some sort of big town hall meeting and even then they would be segregated to their own little groups. This was not something that came together in any way. But over time, 
as the message of Jesus Christ was shared with everyone, regardless of like their financial status, the people that were sharing the gospel, they weren't like concerned about, well, who has enough money and who can pay their tithes? They were just wanting to make sure that everybody could hear about the good news of Jesus Christ. So, so these people are sharing the gospel everywhere they go and people are coming to accept the saving love of Jesus Christ. Lives are being transformed. So then people from very different walks of life found themselves interacting with each other because of Jesus. And something about Jesus compels us into relationships with people that are not like us, that we would have never expected to be in friendship with or relationship with. And it's never planned unless it's some sort of a charity experience. And you're like there to serve somebody at a charity event. And you're not like in the same, um, there's like a power differential there when that happens. What I'm saying is in the church, there are no power differentials. It is this incredible experience that Jesus comes to bring people together in a unifying sense. So in Corinth, this is what was happening. The rich and the poor were coming together around the table of God's grace. But the early church met in homes. Um, and at that time, and still today, the wealthy had the largest homes. And so they had the biggest amount of spaces for people to congregate and gather together. And the way they did this was around a meal. They would share a meal together. But meeting together, they were doing this meeting together from the standpoint of these accepted social norms. And the norms were that the wealthy ate lavish and abundantly. They ate rich foods and enjoyed each other's company and the poor did not. So not only were they did not, they didn't just eat differently. They also wouldn't eat together either. So they'd be in the same area. Yes. Like the same home for the meeting, but most of the wealthier homes would have a dining room. It usually fit about nine to 10 people. They would go in this like little U-shaped table and they'd all lounge around this table. They would eat the meal together, lounging. Um, and that would be like the wealthy and their best friends. It would be like kind of the, the exclusive group would be there in that dining room. Outside the dining room would be this atrium that could usually fit about 30 or 40 people. And the more poor people would be eating in that atrium. And then outside of the atrium was the courtyard that could fit a number of other people, a lot more people really. And this is how they would eat the wealthy in one room, the less wealthy in the other and the poorest being outside. And then the people that are serving the servants wouldn't even necessarily get to eat at all. You'd have the haves and the have nots. But this was the accepted cultural norm of the day. Most people poor and rich alike, they wouldn't have questioned it. It was just the way things were. It would not have made anybody uncomfortable because it was how things went. And at the end of the day's events, their mealtime that they all experienced segregated, the group would gather together for a common teaching of the bread and the wine. They would share the bread and the wine. They would hear the words of the gospel. And then there would be some sort of teaching from the scriptures. When I say scriptures, it was always the Old Testament at this point in the, by the time the Corinthians was written, they would hear a teaching of the scriptures from one of the church leaders. And then they would go their separate ways. And this was their common experience of gathering together. Now, this type of segregation was absolutely ungodly. This segregation around communion, where these people belonged over here and those people belonged over there. And there wasn't times where they came together, except for that very brief 
moment. And what Paul wanted to do, even though this was like the culturally accepted way of doing things, a very normal and accepted way, Paul wanted to peel away those cultural constructs to show God's intention for humanity. The communion table is the concrete picture of God's intention for humanity and how we've been created to live. And the table invites us to see those cultural distinctions and those divisions for what they are. They're merely constructs. They're faulty attempts at us grabbing for power. And they are our belief that the good life comes through certain wealth and influence. So Paul was subverting the cultural constructs by making a mockery of them, essentially. Like the table of God's grace makes a mockery of every kind of division or distinction that we put around. The, the communion meal, it undoes hierarchy. It dismantles climbing for position and power. And it disassembles every way we try to rank and classify and divide people. So in this passage of scripture, we read how the rich... We're shaming the poor by keeping the classes separate. And even though this was accepted, Paul would not accept it because Christ didn't come for us to keep up our divisions. Christ came to unify human beings around the love and grace of God. And the most concrete picture of that unity was the physical practice of eating together, eating a meal together. Think about the times that you've eaten meals with people that you wouldn't normally eat meals with those experiences. Think about those times when you have had people around your table that you're just like, ten, five years ago, that would this would have never happened. I'm so surprised by this right now. There's something so disarming about sharing a table with people who are different from you. Anybody have any experiences with that or any stories or any ways that meals have brought you together in a way that you didn't think was possible? Also, meals can tear us apart. Thanksgiving, anybody? Politics? Woo! And it was like all sustainable food and stuff. And I even like, like the most random people on the I knew people from Canada. Yeah. I knew people who, like, you know, like, we just don't want to go through it. And I did not accept it. <laughs> Yeah. Totally. Yeah. That's, that's, I love that. So good. Yeah. Tell us. I was traveling in India and we were doing a, a conference for women while we were there. And um, the way it was set up, you come into a courtyard tent area where we could worship together. And then the white people, the <laughs> honored guests, would go with another, with, and we'd sit at tables and they were, we were apart. Mm -hmm. We were with the leaders of the church, sorry, but we were apart. And they blamed it on the, on the spiciness of the food. Because we would eat, you know, rather spicy food. That's why we had to eat. And we were just using a table. And I grabbed my plate and I went and sat with the mamas and the grandmothers. Yeah. They were sitting out on the ground. And the children were climbing all over them. And they were running around, seeing the ground. And I sat down. And it was such a destructive thing to do. They were all looking at me like, <laughs> why are you here? And yet I just stood there and I smiled. I didn't speak their language. They didn't speak English at all. But I did speak mom, and there's yes. babies, and there's grandmothers, and I ended up uh, looking at the woman next to me, who had no teeth, and she was wrinkly, 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 this is older woman, had this beautiful pink, they wanted to start, because they were the most beautiful colors, 
And I had this scarf that was very different, kind of muted tones. And I looked at her scarf and I went like this, and I said, it's so pretty. You know, I just kind of trying to sign her that it's very pretty. And she took it off and she handed it to me. And I took off my scarf and handed it to her, and she just wore that thing like she was royalty. And I wore mine, and I still have it to this day. It was like an exchange of equality. It was like an exchange of, I get you, I see you. Yeah, I think I was wondering, that, that just sitting there, and then, you know, the place that I wasn't really invited to go, but I needed to be, it was important. Um, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, Rashawn. Oh, I just want to share, I just took a 32-hour train ride with my five-year-old granddaughter, and um, you usually prompt everything to happen. <laughs> <laughs> but it was really interesting because um, in the dining car, um, their booths to ship at four people, and they, we were just two. And so they would, um, to get everybody to eat, they would ship to people and say, you don't mind, we're going to second with this couple or this yeah. couple. It was really kind of an experience because we were talking about so many different, um, we had two older ladies in their 80s, sat with us, and um, my granddaughter, she just, She's a doctor. She's five years old, but um, she she just had so many different experiences. We sat with a couple of people that were from another country. They were um, just their language was different, um, their mannerisms, but they everybody was so engaged with her, and she just she got to just learn all of these different um, just different things to being with all these different people, but. You know, I would have walked into a dining car and said, Can I sit with you? And I'm like, I can sit with my granddaughter, totally keep our little. But I learned that, you know, like by them saying, doing that, and we're going to step you with somebody, I didn't have the option, right? But I enjoyed every moment, all the different couples or the different people, like different people. And it was a really good learning space for not only her, but me as well. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And then the restaurants before where they have like, one big table that's just the common table where anybody can sit and share you know together share share a meal i mean you know you're paying for your own stuff and everything but it's really incredible to see what happens when we eat together anything it's just absolutely radical thanks for, yeah go ahead joe so being in the industry that i yes share a lot so <laughs> I get it's same you know what what Pamela uh, said for transportation and stuff. Um, I find that it is the one common ground. Yes. That we all have to share. It doesn't matter how if you have a mansion on the hill or you're you know struggling to make ends meet. Everybody kind of seems to calm down when the food served. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, totally. It, it totally it creates even. Yeah. So. Doing this most of my life, I kind of had to kind of beat my mentality in the street, and I thought, man, maybe there's something different for me. But bringing people together, it's getting them a place where they can share every event in their life, whether it's just there by themselves, like the kids are at home, I have moments myself, or they're with a party at 20, it's a family up there. Uh, you know, we definitely bring people together. And so, yeah, I call the spiritual double double. For the last two years, I've taken a variety of people in this room even, to lunch on Tuesday or Thursday. I ask questions and I listen and I connect with people. Some of some of which I don't know. They're not really a connection. I'm sorry, I love everybody. <laughs>
some of which I haven't really connected very well with others. It's like it's been spiritual. Yeah. And it's it's a cheap day. It's easy. It's outdoors. Yeah. Victor Green serves food outside during COVID, and he really cleans the tables good. And it's crazy. So it's been really fun to connect with uh, some other brothers in a really cool way. So you see, know, I didn't like connecting with people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Georgia. Um, so a couple years ago, I went to Italy with my family. Um, I'm Italian, uh, and we got together with some friends of my uncle who live in Italy. So we had four different languages being spoken at the same table, wow. like 18 of us. So some of us were trying to speak English with, you know, people that didn't speak English very well. Some of us were trying to speak Spanish. We had French going on and Italian. And while we were all broken in our connect, attempts to connect and communicate with one another because we didn't speak enough of any of the languages to really be able to formally communicate that that time together was like we all understood each other enough that we were able to make these bonds um and i don't think that would have ever happened had they not been friends of my uncles but um it was just such an interesting time to have like three really distinct age groups and four different languages being spoken yeah. at the same table together so i love that oh man yeah like um, I I intersected genuine bonding there. And like I like we know enough, like what you're saying, we know enough of what you're saying to make it work. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I know that food is something that can bring people together in such a beautiful way. And I think that's one of the reasons that Jesus chose that as the example of how we continue forth in our relationship together. Um, I want to I want to read a little bit further on this passage or or back to the same thing that we were reading before on verse 27. Because this passage has long been used as a way of excluding people or keeping people from the table of God's grace. And today it's still used as a form of division. Um, and it's because in verses 27 to 29, it says, so then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. This has been twisted many times over the years, over the last 2000 years, to represent you have to get right with God before you come to the table. And there's a sense that like, if you don't fit these certain requirements, then you aren't worthy of receiving from the Lord's table, receiving communion. And, and unfortunately, good Christians have made it to where you have to be a, a member of the church before you can, or you have to be a certain age, or um, you only can be a Christian to receive the body and blood, or you have to be baptized or go to confession first. Um, and I think that this has caused many people over the course of their lives to allow the, the, the cup and the bread to pass by them because they feel like they are unworthy of receiving because of something that's going on in their lives or something that's keeping them feeling separated their own shame or feelings of unworth. But friends, the table was never closed to anybody. 
not once. It was, it was, and it is an open table. The last supper that Jesus ever shared with his disciples were shared with people who we would believe are not worthy. I mean, you've got like more divisions around that table than commonalities. You've got brothers and obviously, you know, sometimes brothers are less good friends than friends would be. And, and you've got Matthew, who was known for his previous life as a tax collector. He was somebody who colluded with Rome, embedded in a relationship with the, with the enemy. He was considered a traitor to his people. And then right next to Matthew, you've got Simon, who was known as a previous zealot. And a zealot was somebody who, had, who like would keep daggers hidden in their cloaks. That way, anytime something came up that they would they could be involved in a violent uprising against Rome, they would take that opportunity. And the people that they hated the most were those who were traitors to the Jewish people. And yet they are together, eating together. And then there was Judas, who was the betrayer, who just moments after receiving the cup and the bread would turn Jesus over to Rome to be killed. Louis, did you have some? Okay, wasn't just want to make sure. <laughs> That's, this is who was eating around the table. Were any of these men actually worthy to receive the body and blood of Christ from our perspective? Absolutely not. But thankfully, it is not our perspective that matters. It is Christ's perspective. And he, does, he deems them worthy. He deems us worthy. They are worthy because Jesus called them worthy. So what Paul is speaking about here has to do with the divisions we create either through our religious beliefs or different ways that we interpret scripture or through the accepted cultural norms around us. What Paul wants us to see is that those divisions and how we've used them to exclude and marginalize people are against the nature of Jesus Christ. Like Paul wants the church to examine their actions and how their actions might negatively affect other people in the body of Christ. That the body of Christ doesn't mean the communion elements here. So when we say that, shouldn't have taken my finger out of that spot. Here we go. So when it says, when he says, for those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. What he means there is not, it's not the communion element. It's not the body of Christ, the bread. What he's meaning is the entire church family. Because right after this, turn with me to chapter 12. I will read verses 21 to 25. Paul uses this whole time to talk about what the body of Christ looks like. And this is a familiar passage to a lot of you guys, but it says in verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, so you all know this one, right? I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Who are the weaker in this? Those that are relegated to the outside courtyards, those who are poor. It says, then the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable, we, we are treated with special modesty. I don't know what to do with that. I'm assuming it's like private parts or something he's trying to do there. Really weird. While our presentable parts need no special treatment, then this is what I want us to focus on. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. Communion isn't some exclusive ritual that we have to protect and gatekeep. The table is open for all people, but no one is forced to be there. 
It is an invitation that we can step into and receive from, but no one is forced to be there. This is why every week I say to you that, that you can come before the table and anyone is welcome before this table if you have a heart willing to receive the love of Christ. That is the only requirement. Do you have a, do you have a willingness to receive love into your life? Not X, Y, and Z, or making sure that you got baptized and said this prayer and did this thing first. Do you have a heart that is open to receiving the love of Christ in your life today? That's it. There's an invitation for us to experience the presence of Christ through this communion supper, or there's an invitation for us to not receive it, but that is up to each of us. So what does it mean for us today? Because this is a church community with loads of differences of opinions and beliefs. You all have different ideas of what belongs and what doesn't. You know, this is, we all, we all have different ideas of how to interpret scripture in many ways. So how do we navigate through our disagreements and the many areas that really should divide us in a lot of ways? Like Catalyst is made up of a lot of different people, obviously, like different, all sorts of different understandings are coalescing in this room at once. But because we are a church that is centered around the body and blood of Jesus Christ, centered around this common Eucharistic meal, we choose as a church family to live in the tension of not having to believe all the same things exactly the same ways. Okay. That is complicated. It is hard to live in tension. It is easy to have all the answers given to you, black and white, here, sign on the dotted line. Now you understand exactly the list of beliefs that we have on our website. That is not what you will get here, friends. It's not easy and it's not simple, but honestly, I believe it is the closest way that we can live as human beings to the heart of Jesus. Because if I am welcome to the table as one of the biggest sinners in this room, then who am I to lead anybody away from the table or make it so no one can come? There's a certain amount of tension that we live in as a church family that is founded on grace. The same kind of tension that was there around the table with Jesus at the Last Supper. And all those different distinctions and differences that can divide us become secondary to the body and blood, the grace of Jesus Christ. Some of you have asked me about Catalyst's perspective on human sexuality. I've had this conversation with a lot of different people. Are we an affirming church or are we a non-affirming church? What's on our website? What's on our belief page? And at this point in the life of Catalyst, we have not made a distinction like that into the main thing about who we are. Some of you in this room are fully affirming and so faithful to the scripture. And you have done your homework and you know what it looks like and what it says. Fully affirming, faithful to the scripture. Some of you in this room are not affirming and faithful to the scripture and you've done your homework and you know what it says. What we do know is that scripture teaches us to live in fidelity with our relationships, that Jesus is constantly transforming and forming us into Christ-likeness. These are differences that could divide us. And they should from the world's perspective. But that is not who we are. We are a church centered on the body and blood of Jesus Christ, the grace of Christ. And, and there will be certain interpretations of scripture that we will probably get wrong at times and you will get wrong at times and might be right at times and might not. But our focus is on loving God 
and loving each other really well, regardless of our differences of beliefs. Some of you in this room are Republicans and you love the ballsy nature of Trump. It is just like, yes, I will put that sticker on my car. And some of you like throw up in your mouth when you think about him. You're just like, oh my gosh, I can't even. Some of you are lining up for your fifth booster shot and others are just like, don't you dare get that needle next to me. Some of you guys in this room have never once questioned your faith in Jesus Christ. You are so clear about what you believe and how much you are loved and what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Never once have you doubted and others are just like, I don't even know if I believe anything anymore. You guys, we are all making our way together and it can be so complicated in so many ways. And friends, if you need a church that can make things black and white for you all of the time, that can affirm certain ways of thinking and everything that you want to believe needs to be affirmed with clear answers, that's okay. That's okay. It's probably not this one. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I mean, yeah. The catalyst is a place where we just, we live in the tension. We just do, and, and, it, and it's hard. It's really hard to do that sometimes, but we keep our focus and our hope on the saving love of Jesus Christ. That is where we put our focus on 100% of the time. And every time Jesus was asked a question and people needed him to answer it in a specific way, Jesus answered it with a question or some obscure story or parable that they're just like, I don't even know what that means. What do I do? How do I navigate through this? And what that does is it actually causes people to get into relationships with each other and friendships and discuss and determine and come to a, a different place, but yet at the same time in complete kindness and love. That is the picture Jesus gave to the people. The Bible says that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance, that leads us to a new way of seeing things around us, and that people will know we are Christians by our love, not by our clear answers or our five steps to salvation, but our love. And it is the radical love of Jesus Christ who took every area of sin every part of our divisions, every mistake and wrong and unloving and self-centered thing that we have done or the church has even done. He took those things onto himself like this huge, heavy burden, and he died on the cross. And when Jesus died, all of that sin and the very power that sin represents died with him. Jesus took the death that was reserved for me and you, and through his death, he exchanged us for life. And friends, when you receive that communion meal in unity and solidarity with every Christian who thinks very differently from you, you proclaim the Lord's death. That's what Paul says. Every time we eat and we drink, we proclaim the Lord's death. I know we say we proclaim the Lord's resurrection, but we proclaim the fact that Jesus took to death, put to death everything that should divide us. That's what we are proclaiming. We're not proclaiming our divisions. We're proclaiming his death. Until the Lord comes again, may it be so. so. Those divisions and those ways that we rank and everything that's happening that we that we try to put into a place like that, man, who's right and who's wrong that died with Jesus. You don't have to hold that any longer. It's not your responsibility. You don't have to have all the answers. 
to all the religious questions. You just simply get to come as a person who is desperate for the love of Jesus Christ and the response. The word Eucharist comes from the Greek Eucharisto, which means thank you. That is the response. Thank you, Jesus, just like your brother and just like your sister who's next to you. You know, check in. How are you doing? What's coming up? Am I totally heretical? Okay. Yeah. Because what if they're like part of my brain, like it's like, what if someone doesn't agree on what the text is saying about yeah. being together? And like, that's, I don't know, like a part of me is like, I'm struggling with that. So, totally. like, I want to be helpful, and I am, but there's a part of me that's like, no. Yeah. Yeah. Let's keep walking together. Let's do life together. Let's keep pointing each other to good, the good stuff of Jesus. I don't have an answer necessarily, but I know Jesus is with us in it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, really. Um, lately, there's just been hurt, like, as a third person. Yeah. And I've never felt so accepted in the church when I'm walking in the amount of just And it's wild that I've never felt this. And it's, it's so nice to have a <laughs> A loving one. So we're really glad you were Absolutely. Yeah, Tamara. Something I teach in marriage counseling. And it came from something from my husband was kind of given before he married me. Do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? And that's really part of what Christ teaches is that we we really care about the connection as opposed to who's right or wrong. Can I love you? It doesn't matter who's right or wrong. You need to protect our connection. Also, when it comes to social change, you need to be bipartisan. You need to be non non or bipartisan. Even if you disagree and you want to yell at each other and change each other, the best social change, like helping hungry people and getting like things on the ground, like being enjoyed and stuff, you need to be bipartisan. That's the number one thing I've heard from people who are doing it. Longer than I can imagine. They may be as red or as smooth as whatever, but if they're willing to go out and do all that stuff with people, then you have to work with them. Yeah, and, and, I, and I'm not saying that there aren't like certain ways that we are called to live as people of God. We're meant to live in a certain way, absolutely. Like we're, we're meant to follow Jesus in all things and to be reformed into Christ likeness. There's certain ways of living that are actually really unhealthy. And that we want to not live into as you know as people there's a reality of sin but yet at the same time there's a bigger reality of the hopefulness of jesus christ yeah and um by saying that god's grace is more inclusive and radical than any boundary or distinction that we might place on it i have a friend named jay baker and he calls grace anarchy <laughs> he says you know there are no rules and there's no laws there's no rhyme or reason to grace God's grace is complete anarchy. And we've been invited to this table where ordinary bread and ordinary juice become sacred and holy reminders of this grace. And this grace has the power to transform us into Christ likeness, where we are not dominated by our sin or dominated by having the correct answers, but we are set free to love 